Okay, so we have um, the last couple of weeks been on page 45. Or if you haven't corrected your, your sheet, it's the fake 44, the second 44. But it's actually page 45. And we've been talking about Israel's history. We started in Genesis and we went through the prophets. And what we were seeing over and over again was that Israel was given unconditional promises from God. They failed in living for God, yet those unconditional promises remain. And so prophets came along, called by God to call out their sin, call them to repentance, but also give them hope of their future restoration. So last week, we looked at a lot of that in Isaiah, Joel, Amos, and Jeremiah. We just took some time doing that last week to see the role of the prophets in Israel's history. And even though they were, of course, very wayward and they ended up in destruction, Israel kind of stopped ceasing to exist as a nation, uh, they still existed as a people. And their promises remained. It's an amazing act of God's faithfulness that a people that was without a national boundary without a national land for so long still remain. Isn't that just so crazy? Uh, As they're still with us today. But this is what has been promised by God, that they will remain and there will be a time of their restoration. So if we want to see what someone like Spurgeon had to say about this, I thought this was a good quote. I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think of it. But certainly, if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. And I think we saw that quite clearly last week as we were looking at the prophets, that there will be a restoration. And remember, it's not just a a spiritual restoration. It's not just that one day Israel will be saved. It's also that they will have all these blessings from God, agricultural blessings and uh, physical blessings in their land that God gave them. That's going to happen in their future. Well, now as we go to... Yes. What's your name? Ronnie. Your name's Ronnie? Okay, yep. Yep. Yes, we are. What else would we be doing here, Ronnie? Uh, well, I hope, you, I hope you checked out our website. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you checked out our website ahead of time. We, we don't do theory. We do the Word of God, okay? And so last week, like I said, we were in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, these, these prophets that God sent to Israel that lead up to the time of Christ. And we're going to Matthew. I don't know if you have a handout for today, but our, ne- our next passage is the book of Matthew, okay? Sure. Yep, well, we're going to the book of Matthew, so you can go ahead and turn there if you want. That's our next passage that we're going to, okay? Or, uh, sorry, actually, John. We're going to John and then to Matthew. <clears throat> okay, so after Malachi... Israel endured 400 years of silence. So if you uh, are looking at your Old Testament, you've got this gap between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years, silence, no prophets, 400 years of silence, okay? Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom, Babylon had destroyed the southern kingdom. Well, then comes John the Baptist. So John chapter 1 is where we'll go. John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34 He comes along and breaks the silence, another prophet called by God. So let's have someone read John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Who's got that for us? Stan, go ahead. Okay. So as you consider this passage, those six verses there in John 1, 
What are the major statements being made by John here? Especially when you consider Israel's history that we've been studying, and they just went through four centuries of silence. What are some major statements that John is making here? Okay, so, yep, he came as a baptizer to bear witness. Good. Okay, that had to be just like really sweet sounding in the ears of those believing Jews, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because what were they doing before Jesus? What did the Jews have to do over and over again? Sacrifice. And it did have to be over and over again. It had to be annually, every year. The Day of Atonement had to take place. And there are other sacrifices and other offerings that took place. Well, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, finally, the one who... There's a finality to his sacrifice, that Jesus comes and takes away the sins of the world. What else do we see John saying here about this coming one? Okay, so John's baptizing with water, but if you go down to verse 33, here we see Jesus is declared as the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That's good news, too. This is not a baptism that Israel had had before. In fact, you go through the law in Israel, and there aren't commands for baptizing in the law. Well, now John comes, and he's baptizing people, and he's baptizing them in water, and he's saying, and then there's yet another baptism coming. There's this baptism that's going to take place in the Holy Spirit, verse 33 says. Okay, so um, we picked up on some of the major statements made by John. The arrival of Jesus and the institution of the church, with the arrival of Jesus and the institution of the church, John effectively becomes the final Old Covenant prophet, the final Old Testament prophet. So even though we're in the New Testament and reading this, the New Covenant is not instituted until Jesus dies and rises again. And so it's kind of a weird transition time in the Gospels where is it the New Covenant or New Testament or the Old Covenant and the Old Testament? Well, it's in our New Testament in our Bible, of course, but the New Covenant doesn't begin until Jesus dies. And so in a sense, John the Baptist and then you could say even Jesus himself are the final Old Covenant prophets leading up to the time of the church. All right. Fundamental distinctions. So as we're thinking about the church that Jesus will build in Israel that we've been studying, let's consider the differences here. Ekklesia is a word that I brought up a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure you all went to your Greek dictionaries and poured over the definition to memorize the definition of ekklesia in the last two weeks. So this is all just review, right? The Greek word for church is ekklesia, literally meaning called out ones. And it describes an assembly, a congregation, etc. In the New Testament, the word sometimes means the entire body of believers worldwide, as opposed to a local expression of believers. So once we get to um, page 48... We'll start diving into this a little more between the universal church and the local church and how that word church is used in the New Testament. But for now, what you, what you need to know is that the word in our Greek New Testament that's been translated to our language is ekklesia, and it means called out ones, describing an assembly or a congregation. Okay? In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word ecclesia is often used to refer to the assembly of Israel. Okay? So this can get a little confusing because we have this Greek word that means church. And Jesus builds his church after his death and resurrection. That's, we're 2,000 years downstream from that. 
But that word for church in the Greek, ekklesia, is found in reference to Israel in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so for an example, let's go to 1 Chronicles 28, just to see specifically how this word is used in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 28, just verse 8. Here David is giving a message to Israel from God about his son Solomon. And let's look at uh, 1 Chronicles 28.8. Would someone want to read that for us, just the one verse? Mike, go ahead. Okay. So what you have there at the beginning of that verse is this phrase, in the assembly of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, it has a different word for assembly. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which, by the way, is what Jesus used and Paul often used, was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. There's this Greek word, ekklesia, which means church. So, would it be appropriate to look at 1 Chronicles 28.8 and say, or to translate it this way, in the sight of all Israel, the church of the Lord. What do you think about that? Could that be translated that way? Was Israel the church of the Lord? Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, so there's some tension here, right? Because that same word's being used for both. But we know that we aren't Israelites living in the land performing sacrifices under the law of God. That's not us. So we're not Israel, but here Israel is referred to as the ecclesia. Well, the word just means assembly or congregation. So yeah, I don't think it would be appropriate to say in the church of the Lord. I think it's very much appropriate to say as the translators of the NASB have done, the assembly of the Lord, okay? That's a fine translation of that Greek word, okay? Now, the reason, one of the reasons I believe that is if we, now if we go back to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we see Jesus using that same word, ekklesia, but look at how he talks about this word. Matthew 16, 18, we could probably start at 16. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. Who can read those three verses for us? Aiden, thank you. All right. So here we have the same Greek word. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia." So now, this word is not translated assembly, which it could be. That would be fine. It's not translated congregation. Technically, it could be. But it's translated church. Do we think that's a fair rendering of that? Well, as far as, uh, you know, we're experts in Greek, you know, we could say these things. But, uh, yeah, I think it is. And notice that he's talking about, I just want to mark what I'm, what I'm doing here, Matthew 16. Um, what he's doing here is foreshadowing something, not really foreshadowing, that's not the right word. He's predicting something. He's saying something is going to happen. So if you look at the verb tense that's used by Jesus, he says that he will build his church. What he's effectively saying is that this wasn't his church. First Chronicles 28.8, that wasn't his church. That was the assembly of God. Israel, of course, was the people of God. 
that was, uh, those, that was the nation God made. But he's saying there's something coming. He will be building his church. And I think it's also important to say that, or to point out that he said, my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Whose ecclesia, whose assembly is this? Well, it's Jesus's. And so as we go into the New Testament, we see this word come up more and more because Jesus is faithful to do what he says. Jesus builds his church, and that's how that word is commonly used in the New Testament. So if you go back to the Old Testament, where there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word, it shouldn't be church, because the church starts when Jesus begins building it in the New Testament. Anna. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. And so we're going to get to that here um, today. That'll be after, well, that's our next thing, that big box that we have on page 46. We're going to look at that. But that's a very good observation. Because, yes, at this time, if we were thinking, well, who made up the assembly? It was the ethnic lineage of Israel. Not just sons of Abraham, but sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you think of Jesus building his church, it's not just the literal sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's all who believe. So whether you're Jew or Gentile. Okay. Other questions, thoughts or questions on this so far? Okay. All right, Jesus is simply teaching that there is an assembly of called out ones coming. Future tense. This assembly of called out ones is coming. That is different from the national assembly of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Though it may seem basic, we must understand this distinction. The church is a mystery revealed. And we're not going to go there today on your notes, but you can jot that down. The church is a mystery revealed. And Ephesians 3 is a really good passage for that. It's not the only passage, but it's a very good passage for that. Because what you have in Ephesians 3 is the Apostle Paul saying, look, God didn't reveal that he was going to do this in the prophets of Israel. The prophets of Israel were calling Israel to repentance over and over again, giving Israel hope of restoration over and over again. Well, then there's this church that Jesus is going to build that the prophets didn't talk about. It's a mystery, but it's now been revealed through the apostles. And so you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul teaches it that way. Charles Ryrie says, though there is a continuity between the redeemed of all ages, there is a discontinuity because the redeemed today are placed in the body of Christ and not in some sort of Israel. Similarly, the redeemed before Abraham's day did not belong to Israel, yet they belong to the family of God. So there are pre-Israel redeemed and post-Israel saints. Okay, does that make sense that there was a time before Israel? We know that, don't we? Um, if... Uh, Let's see, if Abel, you know, Cain and Abel, if Abel was a believer, he was not an Israelite. Israelites didn't exist. Um, Noah was not an Israelite. Israelites didn't exist. There were pre-Israel redeemed. Well, now the church exists as post-Israel saints. We're not Israelites either. We are Christians. We are in the body of Christ. And so even though there's some continuity in the Bible, there's also some discontinuity in the Bible. And we see that not all saved people are Israelites. Not all saved people are in the church. Okay? There are different ways that God has uh, saved people, not ways he has saved people. It's always been by grace through faith. But there have been different classifications, that's what I was looking for, uh, for the redeemed throughout God's program. Okay? Thoughts or questions there? Okay, well, let's fill out this box. You've got this big box, Israel and the church. This is going to focus on the discontinuity, the things that are different. 
So Israel was elect as a nation, but the church is elect as individuals. Israel's elect as a nation. The church is elect as individuals. Isn't it interesting that I got Romans 9 cited here. I could have cited Romans 11, where Paul does say in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. There's no other nation that you could put in there besides Israel. You can't say all Zimbabwe will be saved or all America will be saved. You just can't say that. But with Israel, they were given promises as a nation, a collective nation. And they were also elect as a nation. Whereas individuals, we are elected, or whereas the church, we are elected as individuals. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 1, those whom he foreknew, this is Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. In Ephesians 1, uh, based on the kind intention of his will, he has lavished upon us grace and the beloved, but he's done so individually. Okay, and so there's a first category of distinction. A second category of distinction, Israel was founded on promise. These promises made to Abraham, 12, 15, 17, we looked at these uh, over the last couple of weeks. There was a promise made to Abraham about the land, about his offspring, about the blessing that would come to the world through him. These were promises of God that were made to Abraham, unconditional promises. Whereas the church, we are founded on an action. We're founded on the final sacrifice of Christ where these promises made to Abraham have partially been fulfilled in that the blessing has come to the world and that all of us who are believers in Jesus are blessed with Abraham, who himself was a believer. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 3. So Israel was founded on these promises, but the church has been founded on Christ's final sacrifice. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, it says in Acts 20, verse 28. Okay, that's how we are founded as a church. Israel, this is what Anna was just pointing out, Israel is comprised of one nation, whereas the church is comprised of many nations. You see that phrase in the New Testament several times, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? That's who the gospel goes out to. The gospel goes out to all the world. And we don't say to the world, you have to become an Israelite in order to be a Christian. You don't go through a nation to get to Jesus but you come directly to Jesus in the state that you're called in. So if you're called as a Colombian, you come to Jesus as a Colombian. Okay? If, you are, uh, if you've got German heritage or if you've got African heritage or Asian heritage, you come to Jesus that way. And the church then is a body made up of many members who are diverse in our gifting, but also in our national background, our ethnic background. One of the things that the Galatians were believing this is, you know, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians rebuking them. They were believing you had to become an Israelite to become qualified to be a Christian. That's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, you know, Paul rebuked them several times about being, having to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, no, that's not what God is doing. In fact, he's uh, placed us under grace, not under law. Okay? And the last one for this screen, there will be more on the next Israel's foundation is their lineage, and the church, our foundation, is the apostles and prophets. Okay, so the lineage from Abraham through Isaac through Jacob, and his, then his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes, that is foundational to who Israel is. But for the church, it says in Ephesians 2.20 that we have been built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The church is built on the foundation of the New Testament apostles and prophets. So we are distinct in that way also. Okay. Thoughts or questions on these four elements before we do the final four? Anna? Yes. It will always be in reference to, uh, well, one of two things. Either the entirety of God's uh, church that he's building around the world since the death of Christ, or uh, a local church. So, um, like when Paul says uh, in... Uh, to the Corinthians, and he talks about there needs to be order in church. He's talking about their local assembly. But it's either going to be one of those two things. Yeah, if you're in the Old Testament, I mean, context matters, right? And so you just look at the context, and uh, there will be probably some New Testament references to the assembly of Israel, but you'll see it a ton in the Old Testament. What you'll never see in the Bible is a reference to Israel as a church or the church. You just don't, you don't see that. But always, so always look at context. Other thoughts or questions? Okay, keep going. Israel was under law. Exodus 20. What happens in Exodus 20? Who remembers? There's thunder and lightning and smoke and stuff. And Charlton Heston comes out. And (laughs) there's tablets of stone are given to Israel, okay? And from Exodus 20 on, when you see FF in a reference, that just means in following, okay? Exodus 20 and following. You read Exodus 20 and just keep reading chapters upon chapters upon chapters. It's law, 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 law. Over 600 commands given to Israel in the law. Have those been given to you? Okay. Well, um, that's a tricky question. But we are under grace, not under law. So the first thing we recognize is the the Bible says quite explicitly, Romans 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. Now, are there commands for you to follow? Well, you better believe it, right? Yeah, it's not just like the wild, wild west and we all just do whatever we want to do. There is order and structure. There are commands given to God's church. And some of them are repeats of the Old Testament law that was given to Israel. In fact, did you know that nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated to Christians as commands. Do you know which one is not repeated? Would it help you if I told you it was the fourth one? The one that is not repeated to Christians or the church is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You've not been commanded that in the New Testament. But you're, of course, commanded to avoid idolatry, to worship God uh, truly, to not lie, don't covet, don't commit adultery. We get all that in the New Testament, don't we? But you never see Saturday is your day of rest, which is what the Sabbath is. Some people think the Sabbath is Sunday, first mistake, and then they think, well, the Sabbath is a day of worship, second mistake. In Israel, it was always Saturday, which again, this is the second time I've done this with you, uh, Sebastian. What's the word for Saturday in Spanish? Yeah, sabado, Sabbath. Okay, it's always Saturday, and it was always a day of rest. It was not set aside as a day of worship primarily. Now that is tied into that, but it was a day of rest. The Lord rested from His work on the seventh day, so you too should rest. Okay, Christians aren't given that command, but there are a lot of commands were given. Mandy, yeah, well, and the Passover too, right? So the Passover meal, Jesus uh, basically had that Passover with His disciples but it was a new kind of Passover. And he says, and keep doing it. 
which today is a communion Sunday. We'll do it today. But yes, and yeah, we meet on the first day of the week as the early church did. We have communion on the first day of the week. Uh, we, have, uh, we do our giving on the first day of the week like the early church did. But n- not, as, not as law, but we're under grace, and that's just the example we're given in the New Testament. Okay? Israel um, re- was required to perform rituals. So I just I mentioned a little bit ago the uh, Day of Atonement, which was their one a, once a year big sacrifice. Leviticus 16, you got a pair of goats, you got a bull, they all die, there's blood everywhere. You got a wash, uh, there's a priest going into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. All that stuff's going on in Leviticus 16. And that's just one chapter, and that's just one ritual. Okay? They had many rituals that pointed forward to the final sacrifice, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world that John the Baptist told us about. So Israel was required to do these rituals, and that's, of course, part of the law. They were under law. The church, however, under grace, now that Jesus has fulfilled those rituals, we we don't perform them anymore. We see that those rituals were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so you don't come here on a Sunday morning in the spring so that we can lead a couple of goats out to the parking lot and stick their heads over one of the drains out there. and We don't do that. Aren't you happy for that? Though we could probably have an awesome barbecue afterwards. Uh, But anyway, we don't do that. And Joseph's not in here for me to pick on him as our goat farmer, our resident goat farmer. But uh, we see that those rituals have been fulfilled in Christ. And the book of Hebrews will do a great job walking you through that. If you haven't read the book of Hebrews, that's one of its main themes, is how the rituals are fulfilled in Christ. The overall theme of Hebrews is how Jesus is better than everything. He's better than Moses. He's better than the rituals. He's better than angels. He's better than on and on it goes. In Israel, there was a priesthood for some, a priesthood for some, and that goes into those rituals. The only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and there was only one high priest at a time, a son of Aaron, and more specifically, a son of Phinehas, a priesthood who could function as a mediator for Israel between them and God. Yet in the church, there's priesthood for all. Did you know that you have been made, as a believer in Jesus, you've been made a priest? That's pretty cool. This is one of the marks of Protestant theology. This is one of the things that Luther and his following was really fired up about. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, you know, there's one priest per church. You've got to go to that priest as your mediator. You've got to confess your sins to that creaturely mediator, and he does the work for you. Well, Martin Luther's point is, the Bible says that we are all priests, meaning we can go directly to God with our problems. We can go directly to Jesus with our sins. We don't have to call up a priest or a bishop or whoever the case may be. We just go directly to Jesus. Isn't that great? He did. He got in a little trouble, but we're downstream from that trouble. And uh, Yes, yep, that took some real courage, didn't it? And then finally, Israel was looking to Messiah's suffering. So Jesus hadn't come yet. They were looking to the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 talked about. That was future for them. Well, we are on the other side of Jesus' suffering. We're on the other side of the cross and resurrection. And we don't look for him to come and suffer again. He came the first time with reference to sin and suffered as a lamb led to the slaughter. Now we look forward to him coming as the Lion of Judah. We look for him to come to reign, not to suffer, but to reign. 
Now, of course, the Israelites didn't see this. They thought he was coming to reign the first time. Don't you know? We read that over and over again. The disciples are, are saying like, your kingdom come. Let's just destroy our, our enemies here. Let's take out the Romans. Let's take out these other people. Uh, you know, James and John are saying, let's rain fire from heaven and kill these people that don't like you. And you can be king. And remember the uh, Palm Sunday, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Worshiping him as king of the Jews. But then he died on a cross with the sign above the cross that said king of the Jews, didn't he? He came the first time to suffer. And even though you can make the argument that now, currently, in a spiritual sense, he is functioning as king, we know that there's more to it, isn't there? He's actually going to come back and be on the earth reigning as king. That's what the Bible has promised. That's what those prophets in Israel were saying over and over and over again. There will be this physical, tangible, explicit kingdom on the face of the earth, and the Lord will reign. There will be no doubt he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so we're waiting for that day. Joe. Okay, green light. Well, um, there are multiple ways to answer that. But let me, uh, let me show you something. This is, that's a good question. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. Paul talks about this. He answers your question. He knew you were going to ask it. Romans chapter 11, we'll start at verse 1, and your answer is a little bit farther down, okay? Romans 11, 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Now, let's stop right there. When he says his people, he's talking about Israel. So even though Jesus has come and started building his church, and this is going on, Israel is still considered his people, Okay? Okay, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Now, that sounds a lot like Paul's life, doesn't it? Verse 3. Sounds a lot like Elijah. Who was Paul mainly being, uh, re receiving persecution from? The Jews, right? And he himself was a Jew. Okay, verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There's the first part of your answer, Joe. So just like in Elijah's time, there were 7,000 Israelites who had not engaged in idolatry. 7,000 Israelites who were true believers. Elijah was looking around saying, I don't see anybody else. I'm the only one. And Paul says to this church in Rome, Paul says, I'm not the only one. Uh, some Jews in your church are not the only Jews who believe. There is a remnant. And what's the remnant that, existing, that, that exists? What's that remnant according to? In verse 5, God's gracious choice. So the ones who have believed have believed because God has chosen them. Okay, keep reading. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained 
but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So, you've got two things happening from God's perspective. His gracious choice of those Jews who would believe in the present age, and those whom He has not chosen are hardened. Notice it's in the passive. They're receiving this hardening from God. And yet, they abide. He keeps them around. It's an amazing thing. And He's been doing it for 2,000 years. And one of these days, when Jesus comes again, we can drop down to verse 26, same, same chapter, drop down. Uh, let's go 25. What's going to happen? Is it going to continue on infinitely like this? Nope, think something's going to change. Paul says, verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there's coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, that all Israel will then be saved. The well, God has chosen a specific number of those who are going to be saved. And when those whom he has chosen have all come in, then Israel will be saved. All Israel. So the hardening will be broken. It will be only a softening of heart for those who remain, and they will be saved. Wow. So you asked a good question. Good job. Other questions, other thoughts on any of this business? Okay, this is from John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. Because the New Testament distinguishes between the church and Israel, it is necessary for believers to maintain that same distinction. Conflating the two can lead to significant hermeneutical, which means it's really just the second thing, interpretive problems. Okay, conflating the two can lead to significant interpretive problems in which promises and directives given specifically to the nation of Israel are spiritualized or allegorized and incorrectly applied to Gentile believers in the church. A really common one for this um, is tithing. Is tithing a command given to the church? No. You do not see in the New Testament a command to tithe. You get that in the Old Testament. And did you know, they didn't just have one tithe, they had three. And when you add it all up, as far as how often they had to do it and how much it would be of all that they had, it was well into the 20-some percentile of how, how much they gave, based on law. They had to give. So when you um, hear someone teaching, well, God has told, us, uh, told his Christians, his church, to tithe. That's not true. You're conflating Israel in the church. And in fact, you're not even reading the commands to Israel the right way because they were given like 20 some odd percent. So we have to be really careful when we read the Bible to make sure that we're not just grabbing things from wherever and applying it to whoever we want. God has given specific instruction to specific people for specific purposes at specific times. And we need to recognize that. We need to honor that. He's, he's the revelator. We're the receiver. So we need to handle his word rightly. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, you could make the argument that we are encouraged to do more than tithe. Uh, Paul says, give generously like God. God gives us more than 10%. So, Okay, all right. 
That's my uh, megachurch resume. I'll clip that recording and send it in. All right, a final thought here to uh, finish out this lesson at the bottom of 46. God will one day redeem all Israel, as we just read in Romans 11. They will go through tribulation that the church won't. And there's a little preview for where we're going with eschatology here in a few weeks. Yeah, it'll be weeks. Uh, We'll get to that in March sometime, okay? God will one day redeem or restore or save all Israel, and they will go through tribulation that the church won't. In fact, the Bible calls it a time of Jacob's trouble. It'll be a time of trouble for the sons of Jacob, okay? We have 10 minutes left. I do not have my PowerPoint in here for my next lesson. I could do random Q&A. I could do uh, whatever. Hayden. Mm. Yeah, so what's interesting is all of humanity is under the law until we come to Christ. Because when we come to Christ in faith, we die to the law. That's the New Testament phrase. And when you die to the law, you're dying with Christ and you rise again with Christ in newness of life, in your believing. And so, uh, yes, the, the Jews, of course, who claim to be Jews, who deny that Jesus is their Messiah, they will willingly put themselves under the law. And yeah, they, uh, they will be judged by that law and it won't go well. For uh, those who are not Jews, but are not Christians, those who have rejected the gospel, they too are under the law and will be judged by the law. And they too will be found guilty. It won't go well for them either. And so the way you escape the guilt that hangs over you as uh, just a human being is by believing in Jesus who frees you from the wrath of God based on his law and introduces you to grace and a new spirit-filled life, a life that's led by the spirit, not under the law. Well, they get to, uh, they, they kind of, I don't know, they cheat, okay? So they don't have their temple in Jerusalem. They haven't for a long time. They want to. And that's another very interesting thing. How long they have existed without their land, how long they've existed without their temple, and yet they're still around, and they want their land, and they want their temple. No other people group in world history, could you say, has remained like that. I mean, it's crazy. And so they are now back in part of their land, the 1948 uh, situation where Israel got their land, some of their land back. Um, They've been there since. Obviously, there's major struggle for that. They want to see uh, peace in their land, like they always talk about pray for peace in Jerusalem. And what that means is having a temple where they can go back and do those sacrifices again. In the meantime, they've made stuff up to like still do it, but they're not actually doing it. There's no blood. Or very little, anyway. Joe? Yes. You're ethnically Jewish. Okay, so there is a distinction, too, between an ethnic Jew and a religious Jew. Because there will be a lot of people who don't have any ethnicity as being Jewish, but then they become Jewish and are they're religiously practicing. And just this past Sunday, a week ago, we had a young man in here who's ethnically Jewish but not practicing, like you. Uh, and I, I thought that was interesting. I, maybe if he's here again today, I'll connect you. Uh, I'll introduce you guys. But, uh, but yeah, so there's a distinction between the two. If you go to, of course, New York, and now they're kind of in the news with the whole tunnel situation, if you guys have been following that. There are a lot of Jews in New York. You can go to some places in New York, and it's just like all Jews. And then the Hasidic Jews that do the 
bunny hats and the squiggly hair thingies and all that. Um, that's, they're all in. And then you have Orthodox Jews that are a little more liberal, you know, but they, they get along with the Hasidic Jews. Then you have secular Jews, and a lot of them will still get along with the Orthodox ones, though the Hasidic ones don't like it. Um, or I guess you could say liberal Jews. And then you have the ones who are just ethnic Jews who don't practice at all and actually are kind of anti-Jewish. They're anti-Israel. And they're, even though they're of Jewish heritage. And so there's really kind of a spectrum on that. Not, definitely not all Jews are the same. So in your case, you were ethnically Jewish. You were just kind of a secular Jew. And then Jesus saved you. And so you're a Christian. You're a, you're a Jew, but first and foremost, you're a Christian, right? And just like the rest of the church. And that's the biggest blessing of all. Five minutes. <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions about this or anything, really? Or should I just shut her down? Right. Well, um, yeah, let's uh, pray again. And let's, again, pray for Ronnie, okay? And, um, and ask the Lord to, to bless the rest of our time together that we could... Focus on Him without distraction. We all bring enough distractions already, don't we? We really don't need another one. So let's pray toward that end. God, again, we come to you thankful that you have so richly blessed us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have made us members of your church, that we get to enjoy your grace and get to explore the fullness of the truth you've given us in the Bible and experience your love. It's so amazing. And Lord, we ask that today, as we continue to do that, that you would help us to focus, help us to uh, see what it is that you have for us in your word as we look at the David and Goliath story, and as we uh, seek to apply it to our lives. And we think of Ronnie still, and, and pray for him wherever he is now, whatever he's doing. Lord, again, convict him of pride, convict him of uh, sin, uh, cause your Holy Spirit to bring him to a place of humility, of embracing your grace by faith alone. Again, we ask that even though the interaction today was not ideal from our perspective, we ask that you would use it in his life and that you would bring him to a better place. God, as we go through the service today, again, keep us from these distractions and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, freely and openly, knowing that we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.